Today's scripture comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. through 5. Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So last week we started a new series called Becoming an Organized Church. And the reason why we're doing this series is not because we're unorganized, but it's because when the Apostle Paul started churches, later on he would organize them with elders and with deacons. So starting a church is just the first step. The next step is to have elders and deacons. And I'll give you an example of this from the Bible. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to his younger protege, Titus, about appointing elders, and this is what he says. The reason I left you, Titus, in Crete was that you might put in order or organize what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so what Paul is saying here is that I started the church but the next step, Titus, is for you to appoint elders in this church. And similarly, you know, Exilic has started six years ago, but we're now at the point where it's time for us to also appoint elders and deacons as the next step in the life of our church. And so the question is, why? Why do we need elders and deacons? Well, in Acts chapter 6, the early church is exploding by the thousands, maybe even up to 10,000 people. And so whenever people grow, the needs of the people also grow. And so seeing that, you know, the disciples in and of themselves are limited in how much they can care for people, what they do is appoint uh, deacons. And the reason for that is because there was a group of people within the early church, these widows, who didn't have a lot of food to eat. And so because their physical, practical needs were being neglected, the, the disciples realized man, we, we can't take care of all the physical needs of the people and the spiritual needs of the people. And so what they do is they appoint seven deacons to take care of the physical, practical needs of the church community so that they can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So very generally speaking, deacons take care of the physical, practical needs of the community, while elders take care they take care of the spiritual needs of the community. Now, can deacons do spiritual things? Yes. Can elders do, you know, meet the physical needs of the people? Yes. But very generally speaking, this is the distinction between the, the two offices and why that it's so important to have. And so as we think about the life of our own church, as our church has also grown like the early church, our needs have grown as well. Uh, particularly after the year that we just had in 2020 where people have lost their jobs and there are financial needs, there's mental, emotional, spiritual needs. And so our needs are growing uh, higher and higher. And as a staff, we are limited in how much we can care for our church community. And because we desire for no one to be neglected the way that these early widows were at one point, it's time for us to 
appoint elders and deacons into the life of our church so that everyone in our church family, everyone is taken care of. And so uh, here is a game plan for the next two weeks. Uh, today, I'm gonna be talking about what an elder is and what the qualifications for an elder are. And then next week, we're gonna be taking a look at what a deacon is and what the qualifications for a deacon are. Now, let me push the pause button here for a moment because it's at this point you might be thinking, I don't really have to listen to this sermon or next week's sermon because it has nothing to do with my life whatsoever. So let me give you three reasons why you should listen to these sermons. Number one, if you love something or someone, you'll want to know everything about that someone or something, right? So no one ever says, I love you, but I don't want to know anything about you. And so my question to you is, do you love the church? Do you love the church that Jesus loves, bled, and died for? If you love the church, you should want to know everything about the church, including not only its architect, God, but his blueprint and design for the church, comprised of elders and deacons and members. So you should want to know everything about the church. Here's number two. Second reason why you should listen is because if you're a formal member of Exilic, you are the ones that are going to have to nominate and elect the next elders and deacons. I can't, but you as a formal member, it's up to you to nominate and elect them. And so it would behoove you to learn as much as you can about elders and deacons and their qualifications and what they're supposed to do, because this will guide us into the future. And number three, the qualifications for an elder and deacon are not just for elders and deacons. You know what? It's for all Christians to display and exemplify in our lives. So this sermon also has to do with you as well. So those are three reasons why you should listen. Do you love the church? Uh, you're going to have to nominate and elect the next elders and deacons. And number three, um, the qualifications for an elder and deacon apply to every single one of us. So let me just dive right into our uh, text for today and take a look at verse one where it says, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. So there's lots of things we aspire to be with our lives. Uh, we aspire to be a grad student. We aspire to get married. We aspire to have kids. Uh, we aspire to be a successful entrepreneur. Lots of things that we aspire to be with our lives, but being an elder, probably doesn't crack our top thousand list, let alone our top 10 list. Uh, and there's all sorts of reasons why we don't aspire to be an elder or we're not encouraging others to be an elder. Um, it could be because of just all the negative experiences with church politics we've had in the past, particularly from our parents' generation. It could be because you have a phobia and allergy towards titles and anything related to titles at all, because it sounds like a lot of responsibility. And, and it could be because, it, yeah, it, it sounds like a lot of work and, and you want to live a life of comfort and ease and you, you don't want to be tangled in other people's issues and, and problems because you have enough of your own. So there's all sorts of good reasons why we don't aspire to be an elder. But I suspect that it's for one reason entirely different and different altogether. And I think it's this. The reason why we don't aspire to be an elder is because we never learned why it's such a noble thing. 
We all want to live noble lives, do we not? But the question is, how do we live a noble life? You know, one of the hottest shows from 2020 on Netflix was The Queen's Gambit. And if you haven't seen the show before, it's about a very uh, precocious young chess player named Beth Harmon. And there's one scene where she's playing an equally precocious 13-year-old Russian named Georgi Girev. And their match is going like over five hours long. And so the match continues until the next day. And eventually, Beth beats Georgi. And seeing that he is you know, utterly deflated like a balloon quickly losing its air, she asks him this question. And she says, Georgie, how old were you when you first started playing chess? And Georgie says, four years old. And I was district champion by seven. And one day I will be the world champion. And so Beth says, when will, when will that be? And Georgie says, in three years. And so Beth asks him, so when you do become world champion, what will you do next? And completely puzzled, Georgie says, I don't understand. She says, yeah, when you, when you become world champion, what, after that, what will you do with the rest of your life? And totally baffled and puzzled, Georgie says, I don't understand. You see, for Georgie, his one aspiration in life was to be the world champ in chess. Nothing more. That was his limit. But for Beth, there was more to life than just being the next world champion in chess. And my question to you today is this. What do you aspire to do with the one life you get to live? Who do you aspire to be? What do you aspire to do? The stories we ultimately believe about life dictate who we think we are and therefore how we live our lives. So what story are you living by? For Georgie, it was the story of being the world champ. For others, it's a, it's a slice of the American dream. Get married, have two kids, cushy job, comfortable life, and that's it. What story are you ultimately living your life by? Who do you aspire to be? What do you aspire to do? And by no means, do not get me wrong, am I saying that you have to be an elder to live a noble life? By no means am I saying that, but here is what I am saying. What I am saying is that the older and more mature you get in the Christian faith, the less you become concerned with God meeting your agenda, and the more you become concerned with meeting God's agenda. Who do you aspire to be? What do you aspire to do with the one life you get to live? You know what's on God's top agenda for your life? Your character. And your character reflecting him more and more. And so if you take a look at verses two and three, this is what it says. Now the overseer or elder uh, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson once said, it is remarkable how unremarkable this list is. 
Paul doesn't say that if you want to be an elder, you have to graduate from an Ivy League school, make six, seven figures, be six foot tall with this dynamic personality and charisma. He doesn't say any of that. He just says that if you want to be an elder, don't get drunk. Drinking, yes, but getting drunk, that's the line. By the way, two of your pastors at one point in their lives, they were bartenders. Jesus' very first miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding. So drinking, yes, but getting drunk on a Saturday night, getting drunk at a wedding, that's the line. And the reason for that is because one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And when you're getting drunk, you are losing control over yourself. And I can tell you as someone who grew up with an alcoholic father who used to get drunk nearly every single night, there is nothing good that could ever come out from getting drunk. Nothing good at all. So Paul says uh, an elder has to be someone that doesn't get drunk. An elder is someone that isn't violent or abrasive, but they're gentle. An elder is someone that is hospitable, opening up their homes. They, they, they don't like being quarrelsome and argumentative, but they're a peacemaker. They're generous with their money. It's a pretty unremarkably remarkable list. It's pretty, it's pretty ordinary in many ways. And what's really interesting is that when you take a look at the list, 90% of it has to do with character. There are only two qualifications that don't. Number one, being able to teach. And then number two, you can't be a recent convert because one of the primary jobs of being a elder is being an example to other people. And when you're new to Christianity, you're still, you're still really young in your faith. But that's it. Um, most of it has to do with character. And at the very top of the list, Paul writes that an elder has to be someone that is above and beyond reproach. And what that means is that it's, it's someone that lives a very blameless and clean life. It's someone that has integrity. And the word integrity comes from the word integer, meaning whole instead of divided. So a person with integrity doesn't live a very compartmentalized life. So imagine for a moment um, your life is, you know, your life looks like a, a pizza pie. Oftentimes what we have is God has a slice of the pie here, church has a slice here, work, family, friends, who we live with, our Saturday nights. And, and there are these different compartments that we have. And so we live a very fragmented and divided life. But a person with spiritual integrity, spiritual integrity is like the sauce on a pizza. You don't just put sauce on one slice. Instead, the sauce is smeared over the entire pizza pie. And so a person with spiritual integrity then means is, is someone that lives a very gospel-centered and Christ-centered life. Christ has domain over every slice over their lives. Jesus has the right to rule and invade every area of my life because he's king and I'm not. That's what it means to have spiritual uh, integrity. And Paul writes that integrity is sort of the umbrella under which everything else falls. So the next thing that he talks about is uh, a husband who is faithful to his wife. And so he's talking about sexual impurity. And then he's talking about uh, integrity with our actions, being hospitable, generous, respectable towards other people. And then he talks about integrity with our tongue, someone that's not quarrelsome or argumentative or gossiping. And then he talks about integrity with our wallets, how much we give our money away. But integrity is at the top of the list and everything else flows down underneath it. And so my question to you today is this, are you right now 
Are you living a life of holistic spiritual integrity over every compartment of your life? Does Jesus have domain over every area of your life? Leadership is about talent second, and it's about character first. You know, in America, we have it completely the other way around. It's about talent first, character second. But I hope that if there's one lesson we've all learned from the, the tumultuous political seasons we've had in the past is that character actually does matter in leadership. It matters a whole lot, which is no coincidence uh, why Paul talks so much about character as the qualifications to be an elder. And by the way, it's not just for elders. It's for all Christians to display. So I just want to ask a few diagnostic questions that I'm borrowing from Tim Challies with whether uh, we are living lives of spiritual integrity. Number one, are there any ongoing sins in your life that would bring shame to you, your family, and church if they were made public? Are there any parts of your life you deliberately hide from others? Number two, do you know what sins you are particularly prone to and do you have measures in your life to guard against these temptations? And number three, if the people around you heard charges against you, would their reaction be, that's not possible? Or would it be, yeah, that's not really surprising? And what does their response say about the life you're living now? So we've just taken a look at what elders, who they're called to be. Uh, but the next question that we need to ask is, what exactly do they do? And why is being an elder such a noble thing? Take a look with me in verse four. An elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So what does an elder do? An elder manages, they lead, they rule, they govern the church into the future. And one good litmus test for this is whether or not they lead their families well, uh, their, their spouse, their kids, because if you can't lead your family well, it's gonna be really hard to lead a much larger spiritual family with a lot more complex and bigger issues than your family. But if you do lead your family well, chances are you have the qualifications of being a good elder because the, the goals of both are actually pretty similar. Uh, a leader in the home says, you know, how are we doing as a family? Are we healthy? Uh, how are we doing financially? Are we stable? Um, should we buy a home? Should we buy a ministry space? And so the goals are, are pretty similar. And so what we want are elders who are already eldering. We want leaders who are already leading. Now, uh, for those of you who are not married, who don't have kids, you might be wondering, do I qualify as an elder? And the answer is yes. Uh, the Apostle Paul was not married. He didn't have any kids and he was a great elder. Uh, but I do think that it does help a lot. But if you are single, you're not married, you don't have kids, I think a good way of reframing the question is not, uh, do I lead my family well? But it's this, do I lead myself well? Real leaders not only lead others well, they lead themselves well. And so can you hold down a steady job? Um, do you have certain addictions in your life? Are you up and down temperamentally? Are, are you someone that people will consider reliable, trustworthy, dependable, or are you the kind of person that needs to be micromanaged all the time because no one really trusts you? 
Good leaders not only lead other people, but they lead themselves. They not only help grow fruit on other people's trees, they grow fruit on their own trees. We want leaders who are already leading, elders who are already eldering. Uh, one of the reasons why we have a, a town hall meeting, for example, every six months, and one of the things I love about it is because this is an opportunity for us as a staff to lead you, to not only talk about the past year, but to talk about the next year ahead and to, and to cast a vision and, to, and to, to, give, to dream big for God rather than insulting him with our tiny, small dreams. And we constantly wanna be vision casting and leading you into the future because that's what elders are supposed to do. But there is one other thing that elders do besides leading, and that's found in 1 Peter 5. And it says this, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, being examples to the flock. So an elder then is someone that takes care of the members of their church just like a shepherd takes care of their flock. Now, most people, they take care of just their immediate family and their close friends. But as elders, you have to take care of a much larger network comprised of your spiritual family and your spiritual friends. And so what that means is that no matter who is under your care, you have to take care of them, whether they're cool or awkward, life-giving life to be around or life-draining to be around you have a responsibility to take care of all the members of our community. And this is why being an elder is such a noble task because the greatest thing you can invest in in life is not your education, it's not real estate, it's not crypto, it's not stocks. The greatest thing you can invest in in life is people. People are the greatest thing you can invest in in life. This is why I love being a pastor. Uh, and pastors, by the way, are also elders. I love journeying with people in their life, no matter how short or long it is that that journey is. I, I love skeptics in our community finally becoming Christians and having the course of their eternal destiny changed and their lives right now changed. I love that. I, I, I love seeing people in our community fall in love and get married. I love baptizing kids, and I even love getting the opportunity to be with you sometimes for a funeral where you lost someone. I love seeing a light bulb go off in your heads during CG, when, when the coin finally drops on a particular topic. I love playing code games and wagering Chinese food for our next CG. I love hugging a dude who is finally making progress with his addiction to pornography and the small victories that he makes day in and day out. I love being able to journey with people and seeing their hurts become healed. People will work for a what, but people will die for a why. They will give their lives for a why, if that why is strong enough. You know, well, <laughs> When we started our church, and I, uh, and I tricked Pastor Gene into moving across the country and joining us, uh, we were paying him a little over $2,000 a month. And he just had a newborn kid, no benefits, no nothing. Why, why would he do something so stupid and foolish? 
You know why? People will work for a what? But they will give their lives for a why. Why does Jeannie, after taking care of three kids during the day, four if you include her husband, why does she, after putting them down at 8.30, get to work and sometimes stay up till 1 a.m. or 2 a.m.? It's because people will work for a what? But they will give their lives for a why. Why does Pastor Brian spend so much time with people outside of CGs, outside of Sunday services? Why does he help our growing church feel so small because of all the relationships that he has with people? People will work for a what, but they will give their lives for a why. Why does Pastor David work so hard behind the scenes to help a growing church feel small too? Because as a church grows, it also grows in complexity. The problem is complexity kills growth. And so as we grow and as we create complexity, we also have to simplify. And he works so hard behind the scenes to do little tweaks here and there to simplify the structures within our church. People will work for a what? They will give their lives for a why. Why does uh, Heidi, why is she tri-vocational? She works at a tech company, she's a student, grad student, and she's our college director and leads a women's CG. Why does she do all these things? People will work for a what, but they will give their lives for a why. What is Dr. Harvey? Why is he walking us through all the elder training and deacon training? Why is he working behind the scenes so that our church can progress to the point where we get organized? People will work for a what, they will give their lives for a why. Why does Pastor Wei, who's starting a brand new ministry with RUF, and he has a gazillion small groups throughout the week, why is he even leading an additional one, an additional CG at our church? People will work for a what, but they will give their lives for a why. You are our why. God's glory is our why. This is why we do what we do. We are here to change the course of people's eternal destiny. We are here so that every person in our city will know who Jesus is. This is why we are here. This is what we do. This is why it's such a noble task. But there's one other reason why we do what we do. And maybe it's the, maybe it's the biggest. The reason why we do what we do is because Jesus is ultimately our chief shepherd. And he laid down his life for us. People work for a what? They will die for a why. And we were his why. You know why he did that? You know, it's one of the interesting things, phenomenons that's happened over the past 15 years or so is that we've become a rating culture. So, you know, we rate things, restaurants on Yelp, we rate stores on Google reviews, we, we rate products on Amazon, we, we rate everything. Can you imagine for a moment if there was a rating app for people where you could rate someone based upon the conversation that you just had with them? You could rate someone based upon what kind of date they are, two, three stars. You can rate someone based upon the kind of roommate they are. You can rate someone based upon what kind of son or daughter you are. Can you imagine if there was a rating app for people? How do you think you would fare? I'm assuming there are some things that we would be good in, some things that we would be really, really bad in. But you know what happens on the cross? Jesus, he takes my, my two and a half star review as a husband, my one star review as a father, and he takes that on the cross. He takes all my one stars, my two stars, my, my, my shortcomings on the cross, and he gives me his five stars. And that's what happens on the cross. There's a marvelous exchange that happens. And 
When you understand that, you realize that all of us fall short of the glory of God. And so to be an elder, you don't, you don't have to be perfect. But you know what makes a great elder? Not someone that's perfect, but someone that really understands their imperfections. Which is why they daily cling to the cross. It is someone that magnifies Christ because of what he has done. And therefore, they desire to live a life of spiritual integrity in every facet of their lives. And they now desire to add value into other people's lives so that they go from a two-star to a three, to a four, to a five. This is why we are here. This is what we do. And this is our desire for the next elders of our community to do the same. We get one shot at life, one crack at this thing. What do you aspire to do? What do you aspire to be with the one life you get to live? Let's pray.